electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell, live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Sarah Eisen, in for Scott Wapner. We've got an exclusive CNBC story today about a major write-down Goldman Sachs could be facing. We're going to have details for you coming up. But this make-or-break hour begins with the once-loved tech sector. The Nasdaq now on track to break an eight-week win streak, and new data shows tech funds seeing their largest outflows in 10 weeks. It leads us to our talk of the tape. Is the tech exuberance fading? Let's ask Dan Greenhouse of Solis Alternative Asset Management. He joins me here at Post 9. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Is the tech exuberance fading? It's been a strong run that nobody predicted year to date, month to date, and now some give back. Not extreme, but down for the week. Not extreme, but uh, every rainstorm has to begin with but a single raindrop if that's what you believe. So this is a a rainstorm? Yeah, I'm not saying that. I just the, the saying is apropos. Um, I mean, listen, you've had a terrific run in a lot of these names, as everyone is well aware. Uh, Apple in, on down through NVIDIA are up 30, 40, 50. NVIDIA is up almost 200% year to date. Uh, the law of large numbers kicks in at some point, And so it wouldn't be, whether in retrospect or at the moment, out of the realm of possibility to argue that most of those gains have been realized and perhaps some some give back uh, or at a minimum a pause wouldn't be out of step with with history. So you don't think that you should buy the dip on NVIDIA because AI is transformational and we're just getting going? Yeah, I'm making no comment about whether one should buy NVIDIA or not. What I'm saying is uh, when a stock the size of NVIDIA, trillion plus in market cap, is up 200 percent for a given year through six months, Again, the law of large numbers says, are you going to be up 400% year to date? And again, we saw the data earlier today that showed that there were outflows of tech funds. There's concerns about interest rates and and global central banks, uh, obviously the Federal Reserve being more specific. And so when you put that all together, you know, could we have some pullback during the, the, uh, the summer? Sure. It's all of them, though. I mean, this was a week dominated by news of central bank hiking. That's right. And it came as a double from the Bank of England in a surprise, came as a double from Norway, which I know people aren't paying attention to. The threat from the Federal Reserve is a double? ECB is promising more. Sure. But Powell didn't say anything to dissuade Norges us from more, from more hikes. There it's, you go. There's a long list. So maybe it was too good to be true that tech was rallying in the face of tighter policy and higher rates. Well, yeah. I mean, but listen, I think the idea behind why you would you would uh, pile into technology, let's say, on the uh, on the back of lower interest rates is because you're discounting cash flows at a, at, a, at a more attractive discount rate. But if you're Apple or NVIDIA, Meta, any of these companies, you're generating tremendous revenues, net income cash flows today. So I think that argument holds a little less water uh, in the act on the active side of things than it does for like, a, let's make it up a Palantir or a Workday, let's say. Uh, where where more of your of your value is going to be realized in the out years or the terminal terminal value, but since we brought up the central banks, yeah. you can't hide one can't hide from the fact that central banks remain way more hawkish about inflation than does or uh, as appears to be the market. the market. Yes, the market continues to not believe what the Fed is doing. They haven't believed what the Fed will do for six or nine market months. Thinks there'll be one more hike. I would argue, I mean, listen, most of the street is, uh, from the economic side of things, appears to me to be at zero or even one. I think there's maybe two shops that are, are that City are two hikes. Two. City, yeah. Andrew Hollenhorst is a two. Yeah. And I think 
Our, our mutual friend Michael Gabin over at Bank of America is now at two. Everyone else is at zero or one. Uh, but this has been the story over the last six or nine months. But the, the counter argument there is that they're closer to the end. Sure. And even if it's one, one or two more, you know, bell, bell's not going to ring when they're done. That's so right. They're, get, they're getting to the end. I think the bigger question is how long they stay at this high level I mean, I, and I, when they start cutting. I totally agree with you. And, and does that change your view on when you should be buying tech stocks? I, I listen, absolutely. I think uh, the, the idea that, that one more hike is the, the straw across the camel's back, sure, maybe there's some evidence there. But at the end of the day, uh, we have no way of knowing whether one or two more hikes is it. But, but from a, from, to, with respect to what you said, the longer you leave rates up at, at an elevated level, the more uh, ocean you're chumming, so to speak, the more refinancings that are going to get difficult, the higher interest expense for on-the-bubble companies are going to be, the more projects or investments that get put off because your hurdle rate is elevated. And again, the longer you leave things up there, the more of that that starts to Painful. accumulate. Yeah. And, and, and traditionally, that's ultimately that more than one more hike is what tips the economy over into a recession. And if that is what happens over the next, call it six or 12 months, then you don't want to really buy anything. Uh, on an absolute basis, let it be tech or industrials. I think Bostic, Atlanta Fed this week, called it passive tightening, just to leave it on hold for a long time. By the way, I just want to point out the market right now, because we are hitting session lows. The S&P 500 down almost uh, a full percent. The Nasdaq is down a full percent right now. We're just adding to the losses for the week. But again, we're down one and a half percent on the S&P for the week. So it hasn't been a tremendous pullback. We're maintaining the month-to-date gains for June so far. It's been a good month. A- 4% on the S&P 500. But Dan, you've got every sector lower right now. And you know the other thing I want to introduce that happened today is weaker economic data, sure. both overseas and here in the U.S. We knew the manufacturing sector was sort of recessionary, looking recession. But do you worry about a recession, which we've been worrying about for the last year and a half with nothing happening there? Or do you worry about higher interest rates? Because bond market can't do both. No, let me, I would push back on we've been worrying about a recession for a year and a half. On the idea that I, I did, at least for me, I didn't think that there was any probability of a recession last year. My estimate was that you would have a recession in the middle of this year. Have we been talking about an impending recession for a year and a half? Sure. That's what but, happens when you see, we saw four 75 basis point hikes. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think ultimately, ultimately what's going to happen is we, we underestimated where the neutral rate is, how high the Federal Reserve has to go in order to bring about the economic damage that it thought, let's say, 500 basis points of hikes uh, had to achieve. But, um, but, that, but that's going to be time, that, that time will tell. But with, with respect to Bostick's point about the passive tightening, I'll just add, I don't think people appreciate this, that if you just leave rates up here and inflation comes down, then things start working against you from, from a tightening standpoint. Policy just gets tighter the more normal things get. And with respect to the economic data that we saw out of Europe and here in the U.S., as that's happening, you're starting to see cracks in the labor market. And I don't think there's anything uh, to fret about just yet, but when you have quits coming down, the work week coming down, and jobless claims going up, you're starting to see indications that maybe the strength in the labor market on which everyone's attitudes have been built mm-hmm. is starting to crack. Right. 260 was jobless claims. So That's we right. stayed high. 2021 20, high. Not a terribly high level, but moving in the wrong direction. Right. So are you changing your posture? Because you've been bullish. Right? Yeah. Well, well I, I've been less bearish this year, for sure. I, I, I don't know that I would say I've been bullish, but we've been less bearish. But that was largely tactical on the idea that uh, well, it doesn't matter. It's too long of a conversation. But but <laughs> now, 
uh, as any any person who works uh, managing money uh, will, will tell you, you have to think each day about the, the here and now and not the then. It doesn't matter what I thought yesterday or the day before. What would I do with it now? And if you're starting to see the labor market crack the way that you are, if you have global central banks continuing to tighten the way they suggest they will, then you have to start continuing or I should say you have to start being more concerned about the recession rather than less. And, and it's important to point out that even if we're right, that people, even if you're right, that people were worrying about a recession last year and it didn't happen, doesn't change the fact that the here and now means that my, worrying about it six months from now is what's relevant, not whether you're worrying about it six months, 18 months ago. So now you're worried about it six <laughs> months from now. I've been worried about it for a year and a half, but I didn't think it would happen until now. I'm wrong by six months. (laughs) Let's expand the conversation and bring in CNBC contributor Bryn Talkington of Requisite Capital Management. Bryn, are are you starting to get worried, more worried about recession and starting to reposition accordingly? We're not starting to reposition, Sarah. You know, we came into this year that we felt in terms of the economic data and the market that we had one of the widest ranges of outcomes. Because to your point earlier, we've had, you know, within a year, we've gone from zero to five plus percent interest rates. And so far the economy has been incredibly resilient. But our concern in the beginning of the year is we've had 13 years of zero rates and going so fast and so high so quickly would, would create cracks in the economy. And you clearly saw that in the regional banking sector. I think ultimately you have this dislocation right now where you're starting to see some economic weakness, some, because Mm -hmm. while unemployment's getting a smidge higher, they're not staying unemployed very long. And you still have 3 million baby boomers retired during COVID and they're not coming back. And so I think that as we're starting to have, have green shoots of onshoring, where as deglobalization happens, which is inflationary, we're missing these 3 million workers. If we go into a recession, it's not gonna look like the past recession. So that's never been our, our call, is that we're gonna go into a recession. We do think we're going, and we'll continue to go into a slow contraction where GDP continues to come down. And that's really important from a sector allocation of what you wanna own and what you don't wanna own as GDP continues to come down and inflation later on in the year remains sticky. What about the topic du jour, Bryn, about tech? I mean, the, the NDX, the NASDAQ 100 rally has been surprising and impressive so far this year. Are we starting to see real cracks in that? Would you change your tune there? No, I think that as of last week, it's come down a little bit, but as of last week, the NASDAQ um, was 20% over its 150-day moving average. And Sarah, if you, if you go back decades, that shows, I mean, that, that becomes very vulnerable. In the first part of 2018, we saw a really big sell-off from January to February because the NASDAQ had gotten overextended. So I think in the short term, it's vulnerable. But this AI wave, I believe we're in the first or second inning. And there's so few com- publicly traded companies that investors can own. And so I still think companies like Microsoft, NVIDIA in particular, which maybe its PE is expensive, but there's never ever been a company raise guidance, that this big of a company raise guidance. And so I feel really confident yeah. that any weakness on NVIDIA, people are gonna continue to add into that name because that just seems like a really clear cut way to get into that AI exposure See, where there's earnings to back it up. Brent answered my question on that by the dip in, in NVIDIA. Dan, it gets into the, I mean, the, the rally in the NASDAQ this year has been all about PE 
sure. expansion, right? Not Are the earnings fundamentals changing for these companies? Yeah, I mean, for the market as a whole, you're starting to see earnings revisions move to the upside for next year. And, and again, from a, from a broad market standpoint coming into the year, one of the reasons why you would be optimistic is because you were looking out, call it six or nine months, and assuming, uh, correctly or incorrectly, now we know probably correctly, that you were reaching something resembling a trough in, in earnings expectations, and, and you're starting to see that now. In which case, if this is the end of the bear market, then you should obviously start buying and the market would, would rally. Um, I, I do want to make a quick point about AI and get back to that for a second. Someone, someone was making an analogy that I thought was really interesting about how, when you think back to the invention of, let's say, refrigeration, no one really knows who invented refrigeration per se, but you know that the Cokes and the Pepsis of the world use that refrigeration to, to grow their revenues and their earnings over the next, obviously, number of decades. And right now, whether it's NVIDIA or Adobe or whatever, we're focusing a lot on who are the, the, the companies that are making the AI, which is not the right way to put it, but we'll go the with it now. Shovels that's is what, right, that's what right. They say. And, and what, what will be really interesting is over the next five years, right. which companies are going to use this. Those companies are, are clearly not found right now. And when they start to emerge, I imagine that's where you're going to make an enormous amount of money. But you don't, you don't have any names for us yet. I can't give any, I, I can't say no, any names on TV. Any, I have no to, uh, you must invest with the fund. So what do you do, Brent, again, uh, with the AI theme, which has been, you know, in the face of rising interest rates, worries about the economy, cracks in the labor market, valuation concerns on the market. I mean, it's, it's hard to fight the AI wave, though, if it is that transformational. You have to be patient, because I said earlier, there's so few public companies that, and we're so early in. And so remember going back when the internet was, was in search came out, it was all about AOL, Yahoo, Yahoo or Ask Jeeves. I mean, Google hadn't even started then and that actually ended up to be the winner. And so I think investors need to be discerning, be patient, don't chase it. But that's why I was saying earlier, I still think NVIDIA, because they are creating the GPUs, they are at the epicenter, will continue to be where assets yeah. flow because it is a pure play. You say in your notes, markets don't care about the Fed anymore. And I'm, I'm just yeah. curious about that because I, I think I disagree. <laughs> I care. I care about the Fed, right? And so it's like you, when the, the market has, has, has been very, very clear, if you see in this year's performance what's working, is that the Fed is done. And the Fed may on the margin go one, they may go two. But I think that to, to what you said earlier, passive tightening, to me, we're just going to stay at this level and we're going to go on autopilot around that 5% until we can't do that anymore. And so I'm very concerned about it because I think that Jay Powell has the 70s blown up in a poster behind his, behind his desk that showed you that inflation peaked, it then troughed, and then guess what? It started running up again. And so I think that will continue, in my mind, to be a concern, but I think the market has clearly shrugged off that they're going to do anything else except just rhetoric. But don't you think the market is the market's factoring in interest rate cuts next year sooner than the Fed is factoring it in? So do you see that as a downside risk if the Fed doesn't do it? Or do you see it as an inevitability? And doesn't, isn't that going to matter? And isn't every word going to be scrutinized until the Fed starts cutting rates? So if you and I are talking about it, it's already embedded in the market. So I don't care what Fed fund futures say. The market knows. The market knows uh, what it predicts in the future. And so Bostick and, the, and, and Powell can say, we're not going to cut rates for two years. The market doesn't believe that for sure. And I think it's unknowable because at the same time, Sarah, 
This is the same Fed. They're human beings. They make a, their best efforts. But, you know, Jay Powell in, in May of 2022 said, we don't see any 75 basis point rate hikes on the horizon. So these are best efforts, but they don't have the best track record of predicting. And so it's still a concern of mine, but I think the market shrugs it off and maybe right so. I do think it's worth bringing up, Dan, and I'll give you the final word, that the 10-year note yield is at 3.7. Um, so it's actually come down a little bit on the week, even sure. with all this tighter talk and tighter tighter policy. And, and two-year yields, 4.76. They haven't broken up, to, broken out to the upside. And maybe that, if that happens, that could be a big headwind for yeah, the market I mean, or tech. Traditionally, the two-year doesn't trade this far underneath the Fed funds rate unless there are rate cuts expected. And, and I, 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 let's say there's one more hike. You are a, a fairly large amount below where the Fed's funds rate will be. And so to your point, I, I, I don't want to predict anything, but I, I think the two years probably not right. Two years probably going to have to go a little higher, especially if the Fed hikes at least one, if not two more times. And is that going to be a headwind overall? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a, if it's a headwind per se, but, but I think the larger issue then is, and this is the only question that matters for investors today, is if the Fed feels like it needs to crack the labor market to get that, to wring that last one or two percentage points of inflation out of the economy, what effect does that have on the stock market and corporate earnings? Everything else, to Bryn's point about the market doesn't care, as long as the Fed does not think they have to do that, then the market doesn't care. The second the Fed is at the point where they are really doing damage to the labor market in order to get inflation back know. to 2%, I agree they don't know. But if that happens, believe me, we're going to care about the Federal Reserve. Dan, thank you. Dan Greenhouse, Bryn Talkington. Have a good weekend to you both. It brings us to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know from you, which of these big tech stocks would you be buying on weakness? Intel, AMD, Microsoft, or Alphabet? You can head over to CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter to vote. We'll share the results with you later in the hour. Let's get a check on some of the top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevelis is here with that. Hi, Christina. Hi, Sarah. So let's talk about JD.com and PDD Holdings. They're two of the biggest laggards right now on the NASDAQ 100 today. And unfortunately, heading for their worst week since March. The declines, though, come amid ongoing concerns over the global economic picture that you just discussed, and then China's own recovery. The KWEB ETF is actually set to snap a three-week win streak at the moment. You can see PDD, for example, is down almost 5% right now. Let's switch gears and talk about Coinbase. Coinbase is higher after the Supreme Court ruled that customer lawsuits against the company could be paused while it aims at moving disputes into arbitration. But the move is also being driven higher by a rebound, rebound I should say, in Bitcoin that has been trading at its highest level in over a year and topping $31,000. Right now, it just came under 31, but it was above 31 when we wrote this. Coinbase also 6% higher today. Oh, Sarah? <laughs> I was about to Thank say you. <laughs> Thank you. Christina Bartonellis, we'll see you in just a bit. We are just getting started here. Coming up, our next guest is betting on one financial name as an under-the-radar crypto play. He'll explain why after this break. And then later, we are setting you up for Nike earnings next week. We're going to hear from a top analyst about what he's expecting from that report and what it says about the overall consumer. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC, down about 220 on the Dow. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Closing Bell. S&P 500 on track to snap a five-week win streak today, but our next guest still sees pockets of opportunity in what he calls a stock picker's market. Malcolm Etheridge, CIC Wealth Executive Vice President, joins me now with some of his top names. So first of all, Malcolm, you're buying buying in, into this kind of environment. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely opportunity still in the market that, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of people concerned that recession is right around the corner, right? We've heard We've been on the brink of a recession for the last 18 months, um, but there's definitely opportunities for some companies that are just not so far over their skis like the Magnificent Seven, right, to keep using that. But also Schwab is a top of your list, which is an interesting one because, I don't know, it's a little controversial right now. It, it was considered after the SVB failure to be in trouble while Benger came on here a few times tried to reassure everyone. Why are you buying Schwab? Well, not only did he reassure everyone, he also plunked down five million bucks of right. his own cash out of his pocket to buy up additional shares of the company. So anytime, you, said see, in our interview, right? anytime like, you see an insider buying like that, it definitely should at least get your attention. But I, I think that Schwab is a unique story in the sense that it got thrown out with the bathwater, the regional banking crisis, but it's not necessarily a bank. It's a brokerage that also has a little bit of banking business. But aside from that, what I think is uh, about to happen as far as Schwab shares are concerned is the announcement of EDX, the exchange for crypto trading that, that just got announced earlier this week. Schwab, it is, it, Schwab is one of their uh, initial investors. And what that's going to do is allow people to invest in crypto, hold their crypto inside of their brokerage accounts alongside their individual stocks in a way that we haven't seen happen before. And I think that's a seismic shift for the crypto industry because it brings some validity to it. It brings it from being just a fringy thing that's only done on Coinbase and others and makes it more mainstream. And I think of the three, you have Schwab, Fidelity, and Vanguard as the major brokerages where folks hold their, trade their individual stocks. It's the only one that's publicly traded, right? Fidelity's family owned and private. Vanguard is owned by its uh, shareholders. And so it's the only way to play that trade, I think. So are you excited about about that opportunity? Because it's been a while since someone's been excited, I think, about an equity based on crypto opportunity with all the fallout there. Well, I would say that it's definitely early in the game, right? Schwab always tends to lag uh, its banking peers anytime there's a, a massive uh, sell-off in the banking industry. And so there's definitely still time to get into the trade. But what I think is really exciting about it from a positioning perspective is it got sold off wholesale with the rest of the regional banks, right? As you were just talking about with SVB, it fell 35 plus percent. And so you're buying at a discount anyway, holding and waiting for the opportunity to cash in on the, on the crypto trade. 
No, I mean crypto. Are you positive on crypto as a, as a real catalyst for this company? I think that going into next year where the halvening is scheduled to happen, there's going to be a renewed interest in crypto, specifically in Bitcoin. And I think that's where the excitement really starts the rally. So I, I think that we definitely aren't done hearing and talking about crypto as a, a, a meaningful opportunity. For Wanted sure. to highlight another one you're buying, which is UNH, United Health Group, because we saw this big plunge. What was it last week mm-hmm. on some comments at a conference that they were seeing more surgeries and more elderly people getting elective procedures, and that was going to hurt the business. Big sell-off. So I think that was a mistake. I actually think that the concern around uh, elective procedures, hips, knees, replacements, those kinds of things that uh, seniors were holding off on during the pandemic and uh, decided to now kind of start to ramp back up, I actually see that spending as a, a positive. And if you think about insurers in general, when's the last time an insurance group actually ate the costs and didn't pass on those additional costs to the insured, right? And so if you just think about the insurance business in general and the way that it works, I think that that 7% sell-off actually presented an opportunity. And we'll find out, you know, after earnings, uh, what, mid-July for UNH, just how true that is. But I think the wholesale sell-off and all of the insurance names was a mistake. And the reason I like UNH out of all of them specifically is because it's the largest holding in the Dow and it's what the 10th largest stock in the S&P. So uh, just from sheer momentum, it's going to benefit from that trend if I'm right. I mean, the long term chart on UNH is pretty amazing. It's been it's been a moonshot over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, but has really been marching in place just in the last year or so. Where's, where's valuation? So we have been very bullish. We as a firm have been very bullish on healthcare for the last couple of years. And you're right. It was a trend that, that was doing us very well once upon a time. And then the last year, that thesis has kind of cooled off. But I don't think that necessarily is indicative of a, a complete stoppage or a slowdown in the healthcare industry. I think there's still a lot of spending that is happening and is going to continue happening in the space that as earnings start to come out, Q2, Q3 is going to make the case for a renewed interest in healthcare, especially as we look to rotate away from tech and try and figure out what comes next. I think healthcare is going to be a big beneficiary. Maybe some signs of that this week. It's the only sector to close positive this week, up a third of 1% in a down market. Malcolm, thank you. Good to see you. Malcolm Etheridge. Up next, student loan economics. The SCOTUS ruling on the White House's forgiveness plan could come any day now. So how could it impact the broader economy and some financial stocks? We're going to take you live to D.C. with the answer. Don't go anywhere. Closing bell. We'll be right back. And all month long, CNBC has been celebrating pride, sharing stories of corporate leaders with you. Here is Poshmark CMO, Stephen Tristan Young. For me as an LGBTQIA who recently went through a surrogacy process, um, I'm very thankful that me and my partner now have two twins. Um, I was shocked at the number of people who felt uncomfortable asking me questions about the process. And for me, I welcome the opportunity to share with them about the struggles, um, the costs, uh, the emotional journey that we went through as partners and how we got there. Being able to answer those questions really felt like I was creating a bridge for people to feel comfortable to understand more about the struggles that we go through. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com meetingdemand meeting demand. 
Welcome back to Closing Bell. The Supreme Court ruling on student loans could come any day now. Kayla Tausche is live in D.C. with how that decision might impact the U.S. economy. Kayla, what do we need to know? Well, Sarah, we didn't get that ruling from SCOTUS today, but it could come next week. And regardless of how the high court rules, student loan borrowers are preparing to resume their payments in September after three years of a pandemic-era pause on $185 billion in payments to the government. The pause saved borrowers between $300 and $500 a month, according to the Education Data Initiative. That's money consumers will no longer have to spend elsewhere once that pause ends once and for all. So what is the impact of that spending on the economy? Goldman Sachs analyst Alec Phillips says it depends in part on whether the Supreme Court allows the president's loan forgiveness plan to go forward, writing, in either case, the impact on spending is likely to be modest in the medium term. We estimate student loan repayments will subtract two-tenths of a percent from PCE growth this year if the student loan forgiveness plan is struck down or a tenth of a percentage point if the plan stands. But the other question is, for how long? Because interest kept accumulating on the nearly $1.8 trillion in outstanding debt even if those payments weren't being made. Now many borrowers are underwater. The Center for Responsible Lending took a snapshot of borrowers at Navian and found 63% of borrowers owe more than they originally took out and a third of those more than, owe more than 125% of the original balance. Chipping away at that debt will take time. And the White House is now prohibited by Congress from extending the pause any further. And it could take borrowers a long time to catch up with that, Sarah. So what is the expectation? Is, is it that, that, that SCOTUS will rule against the president's plan? The expectation is that SCOTUS will uh, strike down the president's yeah. plan to forgive up to $20,000 per borrower. Of course, you could always be surprised, but that plan is an estimated $400 billion boon to the economy if it goes forward. It would keep a lot of that money in borrowers' pockets, but um, the expectation is that it will get struck down at some point. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Sure. Let's get back to Christina Partzinevelos, who's looking at how the SCOTUS ruling, Christina, could impact payment stocks. SoFi in particular has moved a lot on this. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And I want to piggyback just on what Kayla said, because you have consumer debt at a high of $17 trillion, a rising number of people 30 days late on their auto and credit card debt. And now you've got the student loans that are set to be repaid back in the fall. So the overleveraged consumer right now has helped lending as well as buy now, pay later companies like Affirm, Upstart, SoFi. You can see on your screen those three names, not PayPal, those three names are at least 53% uh, year to date higher, vastly outpacing the S&P 500. But the the issue right now with a lot of analysts is that they're remaining cautious. They're saying student debt has been priced in because we knew it was going to end uh, as of June 30th, that uh, moratorium. So Compass has a sell rating on SoFi in particular with a $5 price target. And they point out that the pause was scheduled to end on June 30th. And that's why you're seeing the stock down about 3% today. PayPal, another one, announced a deal with a private equity firm KKR earlier this week to buy its European buy now, pay later debt, which is definitely good news for PayPal. PayPal because you're externalizing the credit portfolio, but it's bad news that the company still hasn't named a CEO, still hasn't named a new CFO successor either, and is facing increased competition from the likes of Apple, for example. And also part of the reason why that stock is down year to date compared to the other fintech players. And then you've got a firm seeing total delinquencies actually increase in May 
after two months of decreasing. But Mizuho still says this name is a buy because it's one of the leaders in the space. And Sarah, I've just named a few names. There's so many in the space, which is why saturation is considered a negative. And then the fact that already priced in debt may make it more difficult for many of these names to climb higher. All right, Christina, thank you. Christina Partzanevala. Thanks, Sarah. Still to come, driving growth. CarMax shares are popping today. We're going to tell you what's behind that move and what it says about the economy. Plus, your earnings rundown. We are setting you up for Nike results next week. The key themes and metrics every investor needs to be watching for. All ahead on Closing Bell. We'll be right back. Dow's down still about 200 points. Hanging around this level. We'll be right back. Goldman Sachs facing a big write-down on its troubled Green Sky deal. That's according to the latest scoop from CNBC.com's Hugh Sun. Hugh is here with me at Post 9. Welcome. So what have you learned? We knew we knew they were putting this for sale. David Solomon told me a few weeks ago, no update. But you've been doing some... They announced the sale in April. Yep. And look, they're getting out of consumer finance writ large. So this is part of that. Uh, however, they're finding that the market... In, you know, in the middle of 2023 is far different than the one in which they purchased it in late 2021. And so, you For know, how much again? So they, they announced the deal at 2.2 billion, all stock. It took six months for the deal to close. And the economics of it was roughly 1.7 billion when it closed, I'm told. And so the deals, the offers that they're getting from the likes of, you know, we're talking about PE shops and some uh, strategic purchasers. So Synchrony, KKR, Apollo Global, they're talking about an evaluation for the origination business of roughly three to five hundred million dollars. And granted, there's a delta of that and the purchase price of roughly one point two billion. Sarah. So that would be a big write down. It could potentially be, be a big write down. What we don't know is there's also a loan component. So they may be getting credit. They've created loans in the past year uh, and they're going to sell that loan book as well. That could offset the hit from the fact that they've lost money on, on the sale of the origination business. So where does this fit in overall with the Solomon and, and Goldman strategy? Green Sky was part of, you said, the consumer push. And, and he was very hot for that. Yeah. He purchased it. And so, you know, it just shows it's sort of a whiplashy kind of moment, right? Here you're inviting a business in and you're saying we're going to be your long-term term stewards. About a year after it closes, it's, it's like, just kidding, right? So there's whiplash on the part of their employees on the part of, you know, Goldman writ large. It's sort of like uh, they want to put this behind them. And they've said that this is behind them. However, in the, in the, in the coming quarters, they're going to have, uh, you know, write downs from this and some other things. So it's going to be a reminder of, of what they, you know, of a deal they preferred not to have done. Sarah. Yeah. Well, yesterday, Betsy Grasek took down the models for earnings this quarter and the year in part on, on our interview where he talked about some real estate losses and equity exposure real estate losses, but also 500 million in impairments related to Green Sky sale. On the goodwill, yeah. On the goodwill. There you go. Hugh, thank you. Hugh Sun, uh, another great scoop. Keep us posted on what you learned. Last chance here to weigh in on our Twitter question. Remember, we asked, which of these big tech stocks would you be buying on weakness? Intel, AMD, Microsoft, or Alphabet? Head over to CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. We'll bring you the results right after this short break. Let's get to the results of our Twitter question. We asked you, which of these big tech stocks would you be buying on weakness? Intel, Microsoft, Alphabet. Turns out more than 40% of you said Microsoft, 43%. Uh, Next closest looks like was AMD, 21%. Not surprised Intel got the lowest. Oh, no, the 22% for Alphabet. There you go. Up next, CarMax shares popping today. We're breaking down the used car market and what strength in that sector could mean for the broader, broader auto space. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. 
A little mini recovery down 170 on the Dow. We'll be right back. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, we've got Phil LeBeau on the rally in CarMax shares and Oppenheimer's Brian Nagel on why next week's Nike earnings look promising. Kick it off, though, Mike, with the market, which is feeling soft as we head into this this weekend, there's also some funky things going on with rebalancing yes. and expirations. What do we need to know about that? A lot that? of mechanical stuff going on. Mostly it's a volume uh, issue. It's going to be a big sweep of, uh, of orders at the close uh, as the indexes get uh, reconstituted. I think the bigger message this week is there was a bit, really the first sustained selling you've seen almost each day, profit taking in the big uh, NASDAQ stocks, as well as things like, you know, regional banks down 8% on the week. You have semiconductors like 6% off their highs. With all that being considered, it's been a very orderly pullback and in some ways textbook. This is the week after the June options expiration. It's disproportionately a down week, but modestly so. And so we've seen that so far. I don't think it leaves us with really looking at any clear fat pitch coming our way if you're a bull or a bear, just because, you know, I think sentiment has improved enough that it's no longer possible to say everyone hates this market. Uh, Obviously, valuations have gotten higher again. But we're in this window where economic surprises are coming to the upside and the Fed's message is consistent, but not incrementally more hawkish, I don't think. So I, I guess all that mixed together means uh, it, it's kind of a coin toss in terms of the next few percent, but the market uptrend has been maintained. Yeah, we're only two and a quarter percent yeah. from the 52-week high. Let's get to Phil on what CarMax's quarterly fee could mean for the used car market. Big move up here, Phil. Big move up, best move in about three years for CarMax shares. And this is a case where they beat on the top and the bottom line. But the numbers within the numbers show that you're still looking at a business where revenue, in terms of what they did last quarter, it was down 17.4% compared to a year earlier. But they have a stronger inventory mix. And as you take a look at shares of CarMax over the last six months, they've really had a nice move higher. Remember, as the interest rates have risen for auto loans and as the market has become so priced so heavily, highly priced, the importance of having lower priced vehicles, it can't be overstated. And that's important because they have 25% of their vehicles priced at under $20,000. Makes sense, Sarah. If you've got a market where people are looking for the best deal possible and they're looking for those vehicles under 20000 if you can play in that market and make a profit, you're going to do well. And that's why shares of CarMax are higher. By the way, all of the uh, auto dealers who have been either expressly uh, with used vehicles or have a heavy mix with used vehicles, they've all been moving higher over the last several months. So today, CarMax, not a surprise as they beat on the top and the bottom line. Sarah? Which, Mike, actually has some interesting implications for inflation yes. and monetary policy. Remember, it all started with those used car prices. Yeah, they're not really cooperating with the rapid disinflation story. Other parts of the economy are. Also, it seems like auto-related expenditures are stealing share of wallet from other things. If you look at like the Bank of America uh, consumer spending data this week, ex-auto was much weaker than everything else, just because prices are higher, as Phil said. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily the cleanest story for the economy, but it is good. I mean, CarMax shares up like 60% from the March low. People really thought that regional bank uh, stress event was going to be much worse for the uh, the auto business than it has been. Auto loans in yeah, particular. Absolutely. Phil, thanks. Brian Nagel of Oppenheimer. Let's discuss Nike, which reports next Thursday. You see promising signs heading into that release. Explain. Well, good afternoon, Sarah. So I do. Uh, you know, the sentiment around Nike has been very negative lately. 
you know, it's, a, it's the same story over and over again that uh, investors are worried you know, about some pullback in spending and that spending pullback catching up with Nike. But you know, if you look closely, I mean, there's been a number of reports lately from Dick's Sporting Goods, Academy Sports. You know, they've all talked up, if you will, underlying strength in the Nike brand. You know, the only place we really saw weakness was Foot Locker. I don't cover Foot Locker officially. I watch it closely. I think that's mostly a Foot Locker problem. But look, I, th- I think Nike's faring quite well here. I think they've got a great brand. I think you've seen a lot of innovation in the brand. And I think underlying, while there are definitely uh, you know, points of weakness in consumer spending, I think overall the, the, the consumer is actually in pretty good shape here in buying products like Nike. I think the, the concern around Nike this quarter in particular is that, first of all, inventories might still be bloated and the China recovery might be bumpy, which has been key to the Nike story. I agree. I mean, those, 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 that's what we'll be watching. So it's next Thursday night, Nike's reporting. And you know, those two points you brought up are exactly what we will be watching. But look, from an inventory perspective, I mean, everywhere I look now on this athleisure channel, inventories have really been cleaned up. And if we go back to Nike's last quarterly report, I think Nike's, Nike's inventories are basically back in balance. So I don't think inventory is an issue. Look, China, I mean, that's a, more of an unknown. I don't know if anyone has a great read. But what we've been hearing from Nike and others is that as the Chinese economy has moved past the COVID crisis, you're seeing more activity there. So I think to the extent that Nike comes out and shows sequential improvement, or at least talks to sequential improvement, that's a positive for the stock from here. What's the stock been doing, Mike? It's right in the middle of its, let's say, one-year range. I, I would argue it's, it's holding up relatively well, considering if you look at calendar year consensus earnings for the current year, we're talking about 2021 level uh, of EPS. I mean, that's just, you know, consensus uh, not using the fiscal year. And so it shows you that there has been this reset on profit expectations. It's maintained most of its valuation. I think it has that quality bias that uh, people uh, want in the, in the market right now in the consumer area. So it's hanging in there, and I do think it's all about getting some kind of clarity as to whether there's going to be a little more of an upswing uh, in terms of demand and, uh, and clearing of the inventory. Also reminds me that we got, Brian, and Wells Fargo downgrade to, from Under Armour today. They cut the target to $8 from 12 Obviously a totally different story, and, and Wells has a self-help story where we wait to hear from the new CEO and see what the plan is for a turnaround. But who, who's gaining share? Because Lulu's, ha- Lulu's been on a really strong run in terms of performance. Nike seems to be firing on all cylinders. What's happening with the rest of the group? No, I think you summed it up well. I mean, Lulu's been performing remarkably well. Right? Every, after, every quarter, after every quarterly report from Lulu, I mean, basically the message is, what recession? I mean, there's just nothing to suggest in those results. Nike's not far behind. I mean, Nike, look, Nike's a bigger company. It doesn't grow as fast as Lulu. Under Armour, I look, I like Under Armour. I think that you know there's a there's a, a repositioning story that's happening. It's going to take time. Like you said, Sarah, there's a new CEO. I think she laid out a great plan. It's just going to take some time here. So arguably, Under Armour's probably donating share right now at some level to Nike, maybe even Lululemon. Brian, thank you. Good to talk to you. Ahead of those Nike results next Thursday, Brian Nagel of Oppenheimer. As we head into the close, Mike, of course, we give you the final word. The 10-year note yield, three yeah. seven four two. Could have been higher this week, given yeah. all the hawkish talk from, I mean, Powell, kind of hawkish, but everybody else still raising rates. It threatened to go higher, actually, for a while earlier in the week. Shorter end of the curve did go higher. There, there has been this undertow of weaker global macro n- numbers, and that's dragged down yields uh, globally. And I don't think you can 
necessarily dismiss any of that. Even though I say, yeah, economic surprises are running well in the U.S., it seems like we're sidestepped the immediate recession risk and the market, you know, earnings are flattened out and maybe tilting higher over the next 12 months. All that said, you know, the, the yield curve is where it is. The leading indicators are where they are. And you haven't repealed uh, their power necessarily to say that there could be a downturn coming. I think it, really the argument comes down to what work has the overall stock market done to take account of the possibility of targeted further declines in the U.S. economy. Uh, so yields staying range bound are fine, I think, for stocks. It's more about the message uh, that it sends uh, in terms of whether we're going to you know, have this the weight of the leading, leading indicators of a recession drag us in that direction. So what are we watching into next week to find out whether this, this sell-off is going to be something more pronounced? I think, well, if you want, just the, the straight-up seasonal patterns are probably a little more weakness, then maybe you get a perk up into the very, very end of the quarter. Um, July has been okay. I think what we're looking for is, you know, we get the University of Michigan consumer numbers next week. So some stuff about uh, about the consumer. And then we're going to be focusing right in on second quarter earnings before too long. And it's looking like the trough. If you look at the way that the cadence is, it's like a 6% expected decline year over year for this S&P for the second quarter. Let's say they come in three percentage points better than as usual. It's still a decline for the third and fourth quarter. We're talking about flat to up. So. You know, getting a read on guidance eventually over the next couple of weeks, I think, is going to be somewhat significant to see. Also, this the AI wild card, you know, it's this kind of source of animal spirits in the market that you don't really know what to do with. But if you look at 3C AI, C3 AI, I mean, that stock is has gone down from like 46 to the low 30s from the highs, but it's still up massively. So that's sort of sloshing through this market and uh, the options flow into things like Tesla and NVIDIA still show signs of getting overheated. Uh, and that's totally non-fundamental, in my view. It's really all about how much we want to capture. Have corrected the bearish positioning? That was coming in saying that's why the market's up. Everyone was too bearish. I think a lot of that has been taken care of. Yeah, in theory, if we get outright greed-driven FOMO, there's room to go. But we're much more neutral than we were. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.